Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. My name's Jess Phillips, and this is yours sincerely. At the start of the very first lockdown, I was seeing so many of my constituents who were losing loved ones to COVID-19 without a chance to say goodbye. Women putting their husbands into ambulances and never seeing them again. It got me thinking about what I would say to my husband and kids if I never got a chance to tell them how much I loved them. So I wrote them each a letter, and I still keep it in a safe place. I've always been a prolific letter writer and know the power of putting words on paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. Alistair Campbell is a writer and strategist known best for his role as the former British Prime Minister Tony Blair's spokesman, press secretary and director of strategy and communications. Alistair currently splits his time between writing, speaking, charities and consultancy. He also hosts the podcast Football, Feminism and Everything In Between with his daughter Grace Campbell. Alistair's latest book is called Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression. And today I'm excited to talk to him about the letters he would send to three people who mean the world to him. Alistair, I imagine on a podcast about letter writing, I've got to say... I imagine you only write really angry letters. No, that's not true. I, I still think there's something nice about doing a handwritten letter. I think if you want something, like, you know, you can easily... Like, there's somebody at the moment that I'm trying to persuade to do, <laughs> to do something that I know they're kind of 50-50 about whether it's a good idea or not. So I'd be banging away at them on an email or what have you. But then I just sat down and I thought, right, I'll write it all out in longhand. And then they'll get the letter through the post. And there's still something about that that I like. So I do, I, I like, I hate getting up in the morning and going and seeing the post because I know it's going to be full of crap. Yeah. But I like it when you get an unexpected handwritten letter from somebody that you haven't heard from for a while. I like that. I absolutely love it too. And it's dwindling though, isn't it? It's like my husband's auntie Liz, who's not really her auntie, she sends us letters uh, very frequently, but really otherwise it's just rubbish from, uh, you know, circulars and stuff like that. But I think that what you're describing about trying to get somebody to do something, I often talk on this podcast when I'm talking to people and most of them don't understand this, but you will understand it, that in politics that a handwritten note oh, yeah. is considered to be like, you know, that's the sort of 
that's the final thing that you use to try and get someone to vote you onto a committee or you know that when you're getting a handwritten note from somebody if you've spoken in their debate or or whatever it is you think this handwritten wrote is lining is lining something (laughs) for the future isn't that awful george bush jr once said he, the reason he became president was because he wrote so many letters. I, I mean, t- it's it's totally a thing that is used, and I don't think it doesn't get talked about that much. Actually, the sort of the use of a handwritten letter and a handwritten note in politics is it's almost the greatest currency is to to write a little handwritten note and people go because it's such a cutthroat world people go isn't that lovely that they thought of me (laughs) i remember john burko always used to remember everybody's birthdays and their children's names he's amazing and i thought he's done that to save his life one day he's gonna need us one day and he's remembered that it's my son harry's 16th birthday (laughs) and uh, that is it is a gift uh, in politics to, to do that sort of thing. So you still write letters. Do you keep any uh, letters that have been sent to you? I imagine you've got some letters from some amazing people. I do keep some letters, yeah. I don't. I kept all the letters I got when my mum died. Uh, and my, dad, my dad died. I, I'm not a big, as you know, I'm not a big kind of star F dot 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 ER. But I did keep the letter, any letters. I mean, Clinton sent me a couple of really nice letters and I kept those. And uh, yeah, I haven't kept all letters, but I've, I've kept the ones that I've thought, hmm, that's, that's a bit special. Yeah, so far on this podcast, we've had somebody who'd had a letter from Nelson Mandela and now you've got Bill Clinton. So I've got a dedicated book from Nelson Mandela, which is not quite the same thing. I got one from Bush as well when I left. Um, that's probably going to go down really well with all your Labour Party listeners. I've got a couple of French presidents. You know, so yeah, I've done all right on that that front. French letters from a French president. Exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Two. So you've got letters from presidents of both France and the United States. Oh, this is this is this is getting a bit name dropping now, isn't it? Um, I need to bring it down a bit. <laughs> yeah, have you got an, have you got a love letter from your wife or a card from your children? I've got loads of them. They're, I've got I've even got some of them on the wall. Fiona and I, when we came together, was like a. It was so kind of whirlwind. We kind of we'd moved in with each other within like you know days. Any relationship between that had been kind of you know before that had been slow courtship and lots of times apart. And so I did once have a a girlfriend that I wrote to every day. Oh my gosh! I used to write to my dad every day. When, when, when do you know when I think I started writing, keeping having the concept of keeping a diary was when I was about nine. My dad was in hospital. And you weren't allowed to visit, you know, outside certain times, which, of course, didn't fit with going to bloody school every day. So I wrote a long letter to my dad every day and my mum took it in. And I've got some of them because my dad kept those. And so when he died, I got those. And, and they are, they, honestly, they, they're, they're, they're quite, quite ridiculous. It's like Donald, my brother, was in a bad mood. Mum was a bit grouchy. I read the paper, the football results were, and I literally list the football results like he's not going to know himself. And then I tell him what I had for breakfast and I tell him what I did at school. And, you know, it was literally like that every day. And I used to draw little pictures. There was a, there was a Sunderland footballer called Charlie Hurley. Don't ask me why. I did this picture of a Charlie Hurley in his red and white stripes. And my dad wrote back and said, I really liked your picture of Charlie Hurley. So then I started... <laughs> Doing different pictures of Charlie Hurley. Oh really <laughs> uh, dear. Well, so you, I mean, that's very touching, really. You have all those letters and letters. Although your whirlwind courtship 
didn't leave you to writing longing letters to your your beloved, who you only recently married, I noted. Civil partnered. A civil partnered. After how many years? 42. 42, you thought? Yes. Now's the time to put a ring on it. Yeah, we didn't even know. We didn't have a ring. She's always worn a ring on that finger anyway. No, it was quite nice, actually. And, and you know, well, I'm not antisocial, but I'm not kind of compulsively sociable. I'm not a big fan of weddings, to be honest. And it, it was nice doing it during COVID because it was me, Fiona... The three kids and one girlfriend. That was it. I mean, that is that is good. <laughs> no, but it was a really nice day, and it was uh, you know the thing about marriage. Fiona, the reason we never got married. Fiona's kind of quite feminist and thinks marriage is all part of the patriarchy and all that. And I'm, you know, as you know, I'm not religious. I don't do God, and and I've always seen religious marriage as a very religious thing. I, I, and I'm very interested in religion. I'm interested in faith. And I think when like we went to a wedding at the weekend and um, of two people Jewish who. You know, their faith means a lot to them, and, and I, I like that and I appreciate that, but I couldn't do that myself because I don't believe it. Yeah, no, I mean, you'd just be swearing in front of a thing you didn't believe. Yeah, whereas I do believe, I do believe that the commitment to each other is important and there's nothing wrong with formalising it. But, you know, to be absolutely honest, the real reason we did it was because Fiona had been part of the campaign to get the civil partnership between heterosexual couples recognised in the law. So having done that, I thought, you know, maybe we should do it. I am married, but my husband always said he'd prefer to be civil partnered. And like in France, they have the PACs, don't they, where you can do it with your sister. And it's it's a sort of like financial betrothal, I suppose. Yeah, that is that is what we call incest, though. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean do that. I yeah, mean, well, you join know, your finances. Now you're in the podcast. Now you're in the podcast industry, Jess. You've got to be very careful. <laughs> I don't mean, I don't mean do word. that with your sister. I mean, you can be betrothed to one another in a financial sense in France, and that's because of the de- separation between law and states, obviously. But yeah, I would prefer to be civil partnered i don't know what you say sieved i don't know because we lots of people have said to us recently oh i saw you got married and and said no no no, civil partnered and it's like it doesn't sound it doesn't sound we've had this situation though for for the all the time we've been together the daily telegraph still refer to fiona as alistair campbell's girlfriend (laughs) (laughs) which is sort of it's just sort of you know i feel we're more married than most couples put it that way I, I'd like sometimes to refer to my husband as my boyfriend. It makes me feel a certain frisson, yeah. as if like yeah. we're now going to go and stay over at my mum and dad's house and I'm going to sneak him upstairs. <laughs> that would be exciting. <laughs> right, so this podcast is all about writing letters that celebrate the people who matter to us. So I'm um, starting with the person who means the world to you. Who would you send your first letter to? It'd have to be Fiona, I think. In fact, definitely, it'd have to be Fiona. And that's probably too obvious. You're probably thinking you want something really interesting. Yeah, but it'd have to be Fiona. In fact, when I got your email about the, the podcast and what it's about, and you know, I thought, oh, is that a bit cheesy and what have you? But no, if, there's only, if I was only allowed... In fact, this was one of the great things about COVID. It was like quite extraordinary after four decades that I actually found I still enjoyed being in her company most of the day. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have, you know, ups and downs. We've had a lot of ups and downs, particularly when I was, you know, at the front line in politics. Um, And it's been very, very touch and go at times. But I think to get through all that and then to come through it in the way that we are. And we literally, I mean, honestly, we we wake up together. We go to the Lido around the corner and swim together. We take the dog for a walk together. This was, you know, during lockdown. We just, we were spending 24 hours a day together and it was fine. 
And I thought, bloody hell, that's quite lucky to have that sort of relationship. She's incredibly strong and she's incredibly kind of moral-centred and she knows what she is and what she stands for. She's got really strong views. And she's absolutely committed to the family and the kids and and she's brilliant for me, you know, and, and, and you know, <laughs> you've already indicated that, you know, I'm probably not the easiest person to live with at times and, and yet we've sort of learnt how to manage it in a way that, you know, I think we're both pretty good for each other. And um, so, yeah, it would have to be Fiona. If I was only allowed to, allowed to write one letter to one person, it would be it would definitely be Fiona, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea for this podcast came because I wrote a letter to my husband when I was really specifically dealing with one very harrowing case of coronavirus where um, a woman in my constituency was... Her husband had was taken away... And he seemed like he was able to walk into the ambulance, but he was taken away and she literally never spoke to him again. And because she was worried that she was infected, she had locked herself away from her children, her adult children, and was cleaning the house and was really frightened that she was going to hurt somebody else, that somehow it had been her. And on the phone, I would ring her every day to make sure she was okay. She's a woman who, I'm not religious either, but I do go to the carol service at the church at Christmas. And I always sit next to her and her husband, as was. And she just kept saying things to me that she wished she'd said to him. And she said to me, "Write, write your husband a letter, write him a letter and tell him what you think about him. Because, you know, I just never, it's not like, you know... She walked. She when when she said goodbye to him as he got into the ambulance. She didn't think that was the last thing. It's not like somebody dying in a sudden accident. Well, you never do. You never do think that because you got you got to have hope. I mean, you do. I think you think that with your parents. I remember when my dad was older. I remember every time I went to see him, thinking as I came away, I wonder if that's the last time I'll ever see him alive, and should I say something? And actually, and and it's it's interesting with Fiona because I mean, so, look. Some days I'm a complete nightmare and if I'm very, very depressed and what have you, I can be impossible to live with. And if I'm manic, I'm impossible to live with. But quite often, even... And she, I'm not pretending she's impressed by this. She, she actually just thinks it's, it's an indication of how kind of a bit bonkers I am. But several days a month, I will say when we wake up, <laughs> I will say to Fiona, whatever else happens today and any other day, never forget you are bathed in love. Oh, that's so nice. And I mean it, but it, I'm probably saying it because I'm a bit kind of heading into the manic phase, but I do mean that. And and I also think, you know, we have this kind of running joke about, you know, she cannot die before me because I am utterly, as your studio sound guy has discovered, I'm utterly impractical and useless. So I keep saying to her, look, Fiona, you could get knocked over by a bus tomorrow. Will you please write down all the passwords? Will you please write me a note <laughs> about how you use the coffee machine, which I can't use? Will you? I do sometimes think, though, I think this when we have, you know, when we have rows and stuff, I do sometimes say to myself, and, you know, I, it's not on for a while, but maybe, maybe if you have one of those rows where you literally kind of end up slamming the door and what have you. And I, I sometimes, if I'm in that mode... I, these days, I will say to myself, what if that is the last conversation you ever have? You know, what if I walk out now and get knocked over by a bus and that is the last conversation? And it's made me, I used to be a bit of a sulker after a big row. I could go for days with that, so, you know, just let it linger. And now I'm much better at saying, right, well, that was bloody stupid. What was all that about? Let's just, you know, 
draw a line. Put it behind us and, and get on with it, yeah. Well, you know, I have it in my notes here to say, do you think that you, she knows how much you appreciate her? But you say that you tell her very regularly that she is bathed in love. I think she does know. Yeah, she definitely knows because I say it to her. I'm saying it to you now. Anybody who knows us know that I probably would be absolutely bereft if I didn't have Fiona in my life. I think I, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. And when I've... You know, funny enough, I've had a lot of close friends who've who've died young, but it's been the bloke who's died. Women do seem to be able to come through it a lot better. I know some guys who've lost their wives, and I think it's harder. But look, I've got no doubt. Look, I probably survive and what have you, but I, I think I would. I'm pretty sure I'd fall apart. I really think I would. And and it's it's the practical stuff. It's the emotional stuff. There's nothing large or small. That I'm, you know, like even things like if you get a phone call, you know, would you would you go on breakfast telly tomorrow to talk about Afghanistan? Now, I know my own instincts, I know what to do, but even something like that, I'll just ping her an email and say, what do you think? And then, so that's for the small stuff. And then the big stuff, like, you know, should I go and help X leader in X country? And, you know... And and then and also she Fiona's completely in control of stuff like money, diary, all that stuff. I don't, I don't do any of that. And, and She's I, just I, a total legend, your missus. Obviously, she is. I mean, I already thought that about her, and and she is, you know, as well in her own right. Not just you know being good at these things for you in her own right, and amazing. No, because she's not a doormat. The one thing no, she's God, absolutely no, not. not. She's not a doormat. Um, but also just a, just an amazing mind on education and the things that she writes and talks about. An amazing woman, indeed. I think we do both see it as an achievement that we've sort of stuck it out in the way that we have and we've ended up where we are. Especially because you have been through so much, not just some of the stuff that lots of relationships go through, whether that's to do with people's mental ill health or substances or just stress. But, you know, you did it in the glare for many years of a very public that must be incredibly hard and to have a job that is so 24 hours a day is not usual and a job that she never wanted me to do that was the hard bit and that she knew and I knew would put an awful lot of pressure on the kids and you know I think we kid ourselves I think people in these sorts of jobs uh, I think we kid ourselves that we're not at least potentially damaging our kids and, you know, she felt that very, very strongly before, during and after. So that's difficult. That makes life difficult. And then when we, you know, when we disagreed about politics and stuff, that that added a layer of difficulty. And that's what I mean about coming through that stuff, you know. And the thing about not being a doormat, I can remember, you know, the worst period was probably the whole Iraq thing, which was the worst for me, worst for her and everything else. And she fundamentally disagreed with the policy, probably thought I wasn't handling the issue or myself very well at the time, ends up in that situation where I'm getting summoned to inquiry after inquiry after inquiry. I went out to come back from a holiday to give evidence to the Hutton inquiry. I mean, she was supportive. She was supportive on one level. But, you know, when I left, I remember Grace in tears, Callum stiff upper lip saying, you know, do your best, see you when you get back. Rory, our eldest boy, he'd kind of, He'd gone off on a run, and I know it was probably because he didn't want to be around while it was going on. And Fiona was just, well, you know, go and do what you've got to do and get back. 
It was there was <laughs> it was not schmaltzy, believe me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, our families are conscripts to a political life and a public life. Our families are conscripts. I every time I see Harriet Harman's children, who are all seem very well turned out and successful in their own right, I like hold their faces and say, "Tell me you didn't hate your mom being a member of parliament. Tell me my sons are going to be all right. Tell me it's okay." And of course they can't because some some will and some won't. I mean, funny enough, I was at the uh, at the wedding I was at at the weekend was Georgia Gould, Philip Gould's daughter, and Ewan and Nikki Blair were both there with their with their wives. And I mean, you know, if you think of what Tony's been through and all the rest, of it, his kids have turned out. I mean, so well, just like really, really, really good people. And I look at my kids and look, they've all got issues. You know, Grace, they've all got issues, but they've they're really, really good people. And I think in the end, that's what you, you just want them to be good people and being good at what they do and what they want to do. So in your in your love letter to Fiona, uh, if you were to write one, for each of the people that we talk about, I'll ask you to tell me how you would sign off the letter. So the words that you would say to bring that final paragraph to an end. So what would it be to the lovely and amazing Fiona? I think I'd say something like, we all need a bit of luck in life. And the luckiest stroke I ever had was meeting you and you putting up with me when things were really, really tough. And I love the fact that we can still have a laugh. I love the fact that you're so utterly dedicated to the kids. I love the fact that I can honestly say I enjoy your company even more now than I did when I was first thinking, hmm, she's all right. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're sincerely all the best. (laughs) P.S. Could you put the kettle on? (laughs) (laughs) It always feels funny, I think, to be sort of sincerely heartfelt about somebody you spend a lot of your time with because I can just feel my husband's eyes rolling whenever I talk about him. He's like, oh, you sound like a dick, Jess. Like, it's hard when somebody is part of you. But I am quite, you know, I am... Romantic's the wrong word, but I'm... You know, Fiona would very rarely say something like, like that to me. She she doesn't wake up and say, Alistair, I want to tell you that you're bathed in love. <laughs> and she doesn't do this thing that I do. I do this thing when, again, it's partly when I'm a bit manic. I can sing to the tune of Flower of Scotland. I can describe any situation that I'm in at any time, anywhere in the world. I can just thing that I can do. <laughs> Such a weird skill. <laughs> it is a weird skill, but I can... So I can wake up and I can sing to Fiona to the tune of Flower of Scotland about what's going on around us, about what I think. And then, and she always worries when I do it in bed and then I do it in the bathroom, then I do it walking down the stairs and then I do it in the kitchen. She, she knows I'm heading off the, the deep end, right? She'd never do anything like that. So maybe I'm the person who I say it and I don't always do it as well as I should in terms of, you know, showing that that is what I feel. Whereas she, she's somebody who doesn't say it that much, but what she does is, you know, if you're with, if, if you're me, or if you're Rory Callum or Grace, or if you're Fiona's mum, or if you're our dog, you know that you are absolutely loved by her, by who she is and what she does and how she does it. 
So the second letter I've asked you to prepare is a letter to someone who's no longer around. So who would you send your second letter to? I'm allowed to send it to two people if they're very close. Yeah, I'm not strict. I'm not like, uh, you know, it's not Desert Island Discs. I'm not going to say you can't have a stand-up piano. All right, well, this one would be Dear Donald and Graham, who are my two brothers. And they both died age 62. So me get I'm now 64, so it was like it was like a really weird period that where I kept thinking oh, <laughs> all bad things come in threes. So Donald, my older brother, he was he was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was in the army in his early twenties. And he's he's the brother I was really, really, really close to. He's actually the reason why I campaign as much as I do on mental health, because schizophrenia, you'll know people with schizophrenia, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible illness. And he dealt with it amazingly, right? He had a pretty good life considering. He was a great bagpiper. He had a job at Glasgow University as the official piper. He had loads of friends. He had independence. His doctor said he was, you know, his best ever patient in terms of attitude. But at the same time, that illness obviously, you know, shrunk his life in a way. And it shrunk his life in terms of the quality of life. And it shrunk his life in terms of the length of his life because... A lifetime and antipsychotics takes average twenty years off your life, and he was he died twenty years younger than my dad, exactly almost to the day. That's one brother, and then my second brother Graham, who also died at age sixty-two, he died having had I can't even put find the words for this, but and it sounds a bit maybe a bit patronising, but I would say a much less fulfilled life than Donald had had, even with his, all his limitations, and then, than I've had with, with the life that I've had. And Graham was somebody who... I shared a bedroom with him for my childhood, for my teenage years. He was easily as smart as I am in terms of his kind of sort of, you know, natural intellectual capacity. But he just never really made anything of that. He became a bit cynical, he became a bit of a drifter... You know, he travelled around the world a bit, but never really got himself a, a career that you'd call that. He had a wife, got a son, but it didn't last. And latterly, he became very, very ill, largely, I would argue, through a lifetime of, you know, booze and fags. And he ended up having a double leg amputation. And my sister and I were with him when he was being wheeled into the, the theatre. And the doctor actually said to us, the, the surgeon said, look, said to him in our presence... I do have to warn you that this might be your last conscious moment because he was so ill at the time, but they were taking the legs off to try and, you know, get rid of all the stuff that was there. And he just looked up at me and he said, oh, well, here we go, one for the booze and one for the fags. And it was like, it was kind of a way of alleviating the moment. But I feel, so I feel with those two very different relationships, part of me thinks I could have done more for both of them. Now, Donald, when I said that to him, said, look, you know, you and Liz, my sister, you've both been brilliant to us and, and, and what have you. And it's just that we get given, you know, I got given a really shitty hand with this illness, but, you know, I've had an amazing life, etc. With him, there was nothing ever went unsaid between us, ever. In fact, you know, as anybody who knows, <laughs> I know a lot of people who've got brothers and sisters and relatives of schizophrenia the one thing that you know he he would phone me all the time tell me everything that was going on whereas Graham was the opposite Graham you could never quite get through to him you know even when he was really ill he's I'm fine now I'm fine now it's gonna be okay he was always sort of pretending to be half half glass full so 
Yeah, so it's and it's it's kind of weird to think you grow up, your family, there were six of us, my myself, my mum, my dad, four kids, and now there's you know, two of us left and both died age sixty two. It all just seems a bit of a just sad and in Graham's case I feel like you know, a sense of waste really. Yeah, you come from almost the exact same family as me, so I have three brothers. I am the only girl, so like your sister and very similarly trying you know, the feeling that you could have done more is a wasted feeling, I would argue, uh, now certainly in, in the circumstances. I think that that's just the natural way that we are programmed, but it, it just isn't true. And having worked for many years with people with very, very severe and enduring problems, whether what society would consider to be self-inflicted or those that come from various illnesses, you can't crusade on someone else's behalf. It just doesn't work. You can only be there when they ask you to be there. Mm, yeah that's true that's true but it's like a, it's a, you know I often felt when I was making my way first in journalism and then in politics which is a you know, very different life to my background very different life to theirs and you know I don't know if you get this but you do sometimes just get a sense of well how come I'm here and they're there you know because they're the people I'm from and they're the people I grew up with and you know, it's just a. I get that a lot. Yeah, it's a str- it's a very, very, very strange thing, and and the fact that they've both died young, just I don't know. It leaves it leaves a kind of weird sense of. I think we mistakenly think that we have the same upbringing, though. Actually, as our brothers and sisters, we mistakenly think that. But I had the same upbringing that you had. We we we, we shared the same bedroom because there's a million different. Like your place in the family, your you know, there's a million di- like how you were with them, uh, how I was with my brothers, how they were with me was different to how they all experienced um, their childhood, and also I have to say that I feel that if you're the troublesome one, that is still also a defined role, like, and everybody knows their role to deal with the troublesome thing, um, like you know, you know, oh, you know what he's like. Could you just please do this thing for me? Is what my mum used to say to me. You know, you know, you know, it's hard things are harder for him and so you would make allowances um and I think but I think that there is a sense of identity that gives you an anchor and if you are just a bit like oh you know you know cruising and if the school doesn't notice you because you keep your head down and you don't cause trouble or you're not really brilliant it's really difficult in and you see it in kids in schools in my constituency and across the country you just think sometimes I think god you'd be better off if you kicked off Mm, mm. that's interesting because I I, I do think like you know Donald was identified as the you know he had a genuine massive problem that we had all had to kind of try and help with I was seen as the one who you know went to Cambridge and became quotes famous and all that stuff and the other thing though both of them were incredibly supportive of me at all times they really really were I mean Don, I'll never forget Donald so wrote by this once he said for the rest <laughs> I once did this thing on, on Newslight with Michael Howard right and Michael Howard he was a nasty piece of work right it was actually the day Tony stopped being Prime Minister and Michael Howard launched this attack on me that was like really vicious and really personal. I mean, I'd be used to stuff, but it was, he, Jeremy Paxman sat there absolutely God's He thought, that is weird. And I remember every time I saw Donald afterwards, for the rest of his life, he'd say, God, I fucking hate that Michael Howard. 
<laughs> if I ever saw that Michael Howard, I would take his fucking teeth out. And I said, Donald, it doesn't matter. He's just a Tory twat who failed and he, he can't cope with the fact that Tony Blair obliterated him. So he has to kind of take it out of me. I fucking hate that guy. And he was like, so, but the, and, and likewise, we imagine if Twitter had existed at this point. So oh my, my brother, my brother, who is the difficult one, I have to frequently ring him up and say, will you take this down? This is unacceptable. Even though, like, he's just trying, he said, oh, it's in Queensbury rules, I think that they'd understand that me, me saying that they shouldn't say this about you, but I'm just like, oh, just don't let it flow over you, but they, it's much harder, it's harder. Graham, when he was, when he was really ill and we knew he was dying and he was in this, this home in, um, up in the Midlands near my sister's place and, and he had this little room, and I tell you what was awful. I remember he's got, he's had both his legs off. I arrived one day, and I went I went to see him, just sort of sitting talking to him. And he always had the telly on. He was a sports fanatic. He was watching the sport all day long. Sometimes listening to music, sometimes watching the news. Very very politically <clears throat> attuned. Really had a good take on stuff, but never you know, but cynical. You know, never could see the weaknesses in everybody rather than the strengths. But he would always say, whenever the news came on, he'd say, "Tell you what." you and Tony were back there this wouldn't be happening he'd always he'd, he always had that kind of basic position of support but I'll tell you when I realised it was kind of all up really was because I'd been look I used to be a chain smoker and I managed to stop and used to have a real drink problem I managed to get that under control Graham never did he, he drank and smoked too much and and he's there like with oxygen with both his legs off and it's snowing outside and he's climbing into a wheelchair on his own and we- pushing himself out so as he can stand and sit in this chair in the bloody snow smoking a cigarette. And I watched him do it because I was just arriving. And, the- and I thought, what's the point of nagging him? There's no point. There's no point in nagging him. It only makes your life miserable and there's so you might as well just roll with it. Do you know what, though? It's interesting that just, just the theme of your thing, you had quite a... You know, because his son was in Poland and then he came back and uh, so you didn't see him as often as he should have done. And, he, and his son, I said this at the funeral, his son saw my brother in a state that kids shouldn't have to see their dads. And the last day, uh, his son was meant to come, was meant to be there and he got delayed. And I was there when I, they, they spoke. And so his last words to his son were, I love you. Sort of, but like in a, you know, he could barely speak by then. It was like he had to really struggle to speak and get the words out. But at least he got those. And then the son did manage to get there. And so at least, you know, saw him. And his, his son actually said something really, really wise. He said he was a good man who made some bad choices. So how would you sign off a letter to them, to Donald and Graham? I think I'd say, dear Donald, dear Graham, I really miss you both. I do wish that even though I know you both think I was a good brother, I do wish I'd been able to do more. And particularly for you, Graham, I wish I'd been able to, I don't know, give you some of the good that I've had in my life, both professionally and personally. and, And I think you were both incredibly good people whose lives were cut, you know, horribly short, and I wish you were still around. You talk about them like brothers talk about, like siblings talk about each other, like it's sort of a constant 
sincerity but never you know it always has to be like an aside as well because siblings uh, you, your language is to take the mick out of each other and to be ribbing they sound brilliant by the way your family it sounds like a brilliant family to sit to have sat around the table and had dinner with i like a big boisterous complicated family they're the best ones it was certainly, it was certainly complicated yeah it was definitely complicated the more complicated the better it doesn't feel like it at the time on reflection often the complications seem like a tapestry i went today to the graduation of my brother um who when he started his degree was literally sleeping in the corridor of an adult education college that had given him a chance to do an access course while he was addicted to both heroin and crack and I watched him with his two sons graduate with a first class degree in politics and uh, social policy today. So it definitely now it seems like an interesting tapestry. At the time, I felt like oh, <laughs> it didn't feel the complications didn't feel all that cracking at the time. But there we go. Yeah, let's let, and we live each day for just today. So today we are happy that that has happened. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before the break, we talked about the letter you would send to someone who means the world to you, the letter you would send to someone who's no longer around, or in your case, two people who are no longer around. The final letter is the letter you would send to somebody who might not know just how significant a role they played in your life. So who would you share that letter with? Yeah, this is the one I found the hardest. One to decide, and also when I had decided kind of how to how to frame it really. My original choice was going to be the psychiatrist in the hospital in Glasgow who looked after me when I had a breakdown in the 1980s because I felt he was the pivot that made me move from thinking this is somebody else giving me problems as opposed to this is me having problems and I've got to face up to them. 
and I said that, so, so he was called Ernest Benny, and he does mean a lot to me. He was an important figure. But Fiona said, no, 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 you don't do that, because the, the most important person at that period was actually Richard Stott. So I'm going to go for a guy called Richard Stott. And Richard Stott, uh, he was a, a journalist on The Mirror. He was the journalist who gave me my first big break. I'd been... <laughs> Fiona and I met as trainees on the West of England Newspapers Training Scheme, which was owned by the Mirror. And my background, nothing to do with newspapers. Fiona's dad was a journalist. And one of his closest friends was a guy called Bob Edwards, who was at the time editor of the Sunday Mirror. And he was a bit of a Fleet Street legend. I think he'd edited four national newspapers. And he was a friend of Bob's, Fiona's dad. And so he came down, Bob Edwards came down to talk to all the trainees in Plymouth. And because he knew Fiona through her dad, he wanted to go out for dinner with us and with the head of the training scheme. I got pissed. We ended up having an argument about what I saw as his inferior coverage of the Falklands War. <laughs> and I ended up tapping him on the face. It was not a punch. It was, it was, it was a tap. It was not a punch. Anyway, by the time... This had been mangled by the Fleet Street machine. I nearly did get kicked off the scheme, but it was fine. I just had to apologise. I wrote a letter of apology <laughs> for my behaviour. But the story that went back to London was Bob Edwards tried it on with Fiona, so I laid him out, <laughs> right? Total myth, OK? Anyway... Next thing, Anne Robinson, who was, at the time, the woman's editor... I wasn't expecting Anne Robinson in this story, but here we go. Right, well, she at the time, she at the time was the woman's editor of the Mirror. And she was giving... She was interviewing Fiona about possibly... At the end of the training scheme, you got six weeks on a national title, one, one of the Mirror's national titles. And she was interviewing Fiona about possibly working for her, OK? I'm in the pub waiting for Fiona. I'm this sort of, you know, drunken nobody who, who's allegedly whacked the bloody doodah. These two guys walk into the pub. I'm standing there having a pint. And this guy, who I later discovered is Richard Stott, shouts out, who's the one who thumped Bob Edwards? <laughs> and he and John Penrose, who also happened to be Mr. Ann Robinson, it's sorry about all the kind of incestuous stuff here, <laughs> Come over to me. I said, well, I think you probably mean me, but actually I didn't. I, it was just this and blah, 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 blah. He says, never mind all that. He says, you know, <laughs> well done, you. Well, I like a bit of character, blah, 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 blah. He offered me six-week shift on the mirror. Just for that? Well, yeah, but and I thought it was a joke. <laughs> so I went back to Plymouth and eventually Sid Young, who became like a mentor to me, he was the mirror man down in the West, in Bristol, sadly died not long ago. And he, he was like, one of the best people who ever lived. And he phoned me up and he said, by the way, Richard Stott's been on. He's serious about you getting in touch now. He says, why has this guy not been in touch about these shifts? So that was my entry into the Daily Mirror. And I did my six-week shift and I ended up getting a job there. And Richard then went on to become the editor. Okay, so he's like the main man in the paper. At that time, he was assistant editor. So that was my first big break. My second big break from Richard was when I had my breakdown. And I'd left the mirror to go and work at Today under Eddie Shah, and Richard had said, you're not ready for this. I was, I was headhunted to go and be news editor at Today, right? I was 28, way too young, uh, but I was flattered into it, more money, more blah, 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 
Off I go. It was one of those decisions, the minute I went, I knew I'd made a mistake, right? But I didn't say that to anybody. I went in, I tried to do it. I was drinking heavily. I was working around the clock. I'd forgotten this until Fiona wrote her chapter in my book about depression and my breakdown. I'd, I'd actually moved out into a hotel because I, Fiona and I weren't getting on. And anyway, I ended up having this massive psychotic breakdown up in Scotland, ended up in hospital. Well, I ended up getting arrested and they said I could leave the police cell as long as I agreed to go to hospital and they picked me up, off went to the hospital. And Richard, who had basically said, never darken my door, he was about three, four days in, he was one of the first people who phoned me. And I can remember it verbatim. He said, um, he said, I hear you're not well. I said, well, I'm in hospital and, you know, I'm probably going to be here for a bit. He said, well, I'm not going to say I told you so. And I said, well, you kind of just did. He said, yeah, well, listen, you didn't listen to me last time when I told you not to go to that stupid newspaper, but listen to me now. And when I say listen to me, I mean listen to me. He said, stay in that hospital until the doctor says you can leave. Go back home and stay at home and get on an even keel with Fiona and make sure you look after her. Go back to that stupid newspaper I told you never to go to and, you know, swing the lead for a bit and work out your time. And when you're 100% or near it, you come back here and you start your old job, but you start at the bottom again. And it was like... It, I, 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 it, telling you that now, even telling you that now, it's almost like as I was telling you that story, I was feeling the burden that I was feeling at the time and it went. And that's exactly what I did. I went back to the mirror on night shifts again. And and, rich, and then before long, I was political editor. And then when I left, then what happened was Richard went off to be editor today, the new today, after the Shah. And then I went to join him. And then by the time Tony asked me to work for him, I was working for Richard again. And of course, this time he was, he was absolutely, totally supportive. You know, go and do it. And he was a great support to me through that time. And he ended up editing my diaries. And when he died, he, he had a really horrible cancer. Um, and he, I literally got the printed version of the diaries, the, the, the Blair years, which he edited. And he did a fantastic job on it. And he loved doing it. And I almost felt like it because it, it was his last big thing that he did, really. And, and so he, he'd been sent home to die. He was not going to... It was, it was kind of palliative. Um, and I took the book and so I was kind of able to say to him I did say to him listen I couldn't have done this without you and I couldn't have had the career I had without you Uh, but I don't think this is the point Fiona made this morning I don't think he ever fully knew just how pivotal he had been in me turning my life around but that moment where he rang you in the hospital that took the relief off you took the burden took the burden yeah sorry took the burden off you do you think he knew that what he was saying would fundamentally allow your shoulders to drop down and for you to rest? I don't think he will have, uh, you know, known at all how that made you feel like, you know, because how could anybody? But I think that when he made that phone call, he probably did it for himself as well, a little bit like he, he wanted to help. That's possibly true. He may have thought he'd been really nasty to me, which he hadn't. He'd just been very tough with me. He said, don't leave, you shouldn't leave, it's a stupid move, and I'd be very, very angry if you go. 
And when I met him, Richard had said, because I'd been told to stop drinking, Richard had said, I want to meet him in a pub. And so I met him in this pub in, just off Fleet Street. And he said, right, what have you learned then? And I said, well, I've learned, you know, <laughs> you were right, I was wrong. It was a stupid mistake. I've learned, I've got, a, you know, I've had a drink problem. And, I, you know, it's not sensible to drink, so I'm not going to do that. And I've learned that I'm not Superman. That's what I've learned. OK, and how do you feel about coming back? And I said, well, I'm, I feel good about coming back. I think I'd like to do that. Yeah, I'd like to do that. I think I, I went to somewhere I should never have gone. And I went back, and do you know the thing? My, the day of my breakdown, I'd flown from London to Scotland with Neil Kinnock because I was doing a piece about him for, uh, for the new magazine on the paper, right? Jim Nochty was on the plane. John Monks was on the plane because we were going to the Scottish Labour Party conference. We went there via a visit to Gordon Brown's constituency where Neil was doing a visit with Gordon to Rossyth Naval Dockyard, which is where I started the first absolute meltdown. I left my hire car at Rossyth Naval Dockyard. I actually went into the base and said, I'm a journalist, I'm with Neil Kinnock, I'm leaving my car in the car park because I don't think I'm fit to drive because I've just been driving the round and roundabout about 100 times. Here's the number, phone the office, tell them to pick up the car, I can't drive it. Got a cab, I'd lost them now, they'd gone to Perth, got to Perth. Gordon's in the story, Neil's in the story. Amazing. Where's, where's Tony? <laughs> Tony wasn't there, you see. He was off plotting. But anyway, in the end, I was in Hamilton. We ended up the night in Hamilton. Neil was doing a dinner. And I had this kind of absolute, total psychotic breakdown. So I told him the story. I, I, I told him exactly how bad it had been. And, you know, he was like, well, you know, that was then, this is now. It didn't matter to him. Heathrow had been a big part of the day, right? My first job, when I got back on the night shift, there was a terrorist incident at Heathrow. And the night news editor said, can you get out to Heathrow? These days, reporters don't leave the office that much. Back in those days, you're out straight away. Something's happened, you've got to go. So I, got, I went out to Heathrow and I got there and I was, you know, trying to find where all the other journalists were and who's picked up what and, you know, da-da. And I had a massive, massive, massive panic attack. I couldn't, I just couldn't cope. I was, I was having like, you know, I was back at the scene where I'd gone, you know, completely crazy. So I'm trying and then eventually I phoned Sid. I said, and I told him exactly what was happening. He said, well, listen, you just sit tight. Uh, I'll make a few phone calls. Just sit tight. Don't worry. And he basically did the story for me. Oh. You're making, I've got to say, the sort of newsroom men, people like me would consider to be the sort of masculine men of Fleet Street in this era, seem like an absolutely, I suppose, camaraderie, the level of camaraderie and support nowadays we'd call it something flowery wouldn't we about understanding people's feelings and things i think with richard he was my boss giving me a second chance and we became very very close friends with sid he was a, a kind of mentor a lot older than me who became a really close friend and he was somebody who yeah, he would help other people. He was just, that was just his, his his nature. And look, there were look there are lots of bad people in newspapers, but there was a camaraderie back then. Since you you then became the person who was the editor, the person who was in charge of things, have you never rung anybody up who you know 
will be panicking and been like, do you know what? It's going to be okay. You fucked up, but... Oh, yeah, I've done that. And the way that makes you feel when you do it as well is just when you put the phone down, you think, oh, you know, actually, I hope I've done some good today, actually. You know, oh, you know, water under the bridge. Let's hope that they can pick themselves up. And you will have done that because he did it to you. Yeah, definitely I've done that. Sometimes when you get to make that phone call, when you can feel that it gives somebody a, a sense of relief... You know, you can sense it. You can sense that, you, you know, that somebody feels like, oh, thank God. Like, you know, and you, you know, maybe, I mean, I do it with constituents and things. And I say, like, you know, don't worry. I've got this now. And you can, I can feel, like, even over the phone, I can feel the sense of somebody breathing out for the first time in weeks. I like that feeling. <laughs> so, no, it's why I do it. It's why yeah, you keep sure. going, isn't yeah. it? It's why you keep doing what you do. So how would you sign off the letter to Richard Stott? I would say, dear Richard, you always knew how fond I was of you. You always knew how grateful I was for the opportunities you gave me. But you probably never knew just how significant it was that you gave me not the first chance, but the second chance. And how utterly transformative that was in my career which ultimately was transformative in my in my life. And there's something very fitting about the fact that you were my boss at the Mirror when you didn't want me to leave, and then my boss again at Today in 1994 when you did want me to leave because you were as committed to us getting a Labour government as I was. Mm, we should... Uh, we, we miss Richard Stock for that reason uh, amongst many others for that reason amongst many others so you wrote your letter to Fiona to dedicate well basically your whole life and existence and the fact that you can still tolerate each other for 24 hours a day to her to Donald and Graham who I think more Graham, I feel like you told Donald how you felt and he knew and he died knowing how you felt about him and were proud of him. But for Graham to try and say that you wish you could share a bit of what you had with him. You have had more than your, not you, but one has had more than yeah. their fair share when others don't necessarily get it. Yeah, I do feel that. I, feel, I do feel, I definitely feel that. Yeah. Me too. Uh, I've had too much luck, too much. And somebody, I definitely must have taken someone's quota because I have been incredibly lucky, you know, and we could be very conservative and say that we made our own luck and, uh, you know, everything that I have, I work for. It's just simply not true. I, I work for lots of it and I use the luck to work hard, but it, some of it was luck without question. And to Richard, who essentially saved your life is what you're saying, you know, gave you an out and cleared the exit. So how do you feel having written all these letters and did anything, you know, surprise you as you were putting them together? I found, yeah, the one with Fiona didn't surprise me. With Donald and Graham, maybe the balance of how I found myself pitching it, which I think you rightly picked up on, I was maybe addressing it more to Graham than to Donald because Donald and I had had all those conversations. And then with Richard, yeah, you made me think a little bit about... He, he wouldn't have known. He wouldn't have known. He'd have, he'd have known it was an important moment for me 
and he'd have been being a nice guy and being a professional and all that. But no, he wouldn't. I don't think he would have known. I did tell him the thing about the burden lifting, but that was much, 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 much later. I don't think he really knew. No. So that's that's uh, that's given me food for thought. I bet he was touched. I bet he was really touched. Well, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me. We could chat all day. We could chat all day, but you yeah. know. People wouldn't listen for that much longer, I'm going to say. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. 